we are starting our fifth lesson, if I have my numbers right, I'm kind of hazy, uh, but uh, I think this is our fifth lesson out of ten in the book of First Peter. So if you have your Bible or electronic device, turn to First Peter uh, chapter 3, and um, I think we did the first part of chapter 3 last week, and so I think we're picking it up uh, around about verse 8. And uh, for our entertainment, our uh, video today is an old favorite from the old, one of the old Johnny Carson shows, one of his uh, routines I think you'll enjoy. Uh, still a little loud. Are we listening? Is that about right? Yeah, okay. All right, so uh, if you remember the theme... Uh, for First Peter, and especially for the chapter today, is what I would call innocent suffering. And today he's going to talk about the value, if you can imagine that, because when we think of suffering, we can't imagine any kind of value or any good thing that can come from it. But he's going to say, uh, in God's economy, in God's view, there is a value to innocent suffering. And get the, the word innocent, because, I mean, he's going to make a distinction. Uh, you'll see it in a minute. He's going to say, now I'm talking about stuff you deserve, you know. <laughs> I'm talking about stuff that just happens to you, uh, and you're not the one who caused it. Uh, and so innocent suffering, and of course it was particularly uh, useful to his audience, and this is why he was writing it to the churches there in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire at, this, at the time, because Nero had just begun the persecution of the churches of, of Christianity uh, in a big way in uh, 64 AD. So this was written between 64 and 66 AD, and they were experiencing everything that he's talking about right here. So he's encouraging them, and he's telling them through his own experience as an apostle, he knew this to be true, that God will actually bless uh, innocent suffering, and there's a great value in it to the Christian, which is really tough to imagine. But in today's lesson, Peter tells his audience of churches uh, that persecution and suffering are going to be a way of life. Get used to it, because it's a part of living in this fallen world. And so just know that there's value to it, actually. There's something positive to look forward to, because God's going to reward it, uh, sometimes here and always in heaven. So don't fear suffering, because it's not a disgrace. Uh, normally in the world, people who are downtrodden and beat down and having a hard time are kind of like looked down on, like written off, you know. That's the end of that poor sap, you know. And uh, a lot of people even uh, equated historically uh, in their day and in ours uh, that if someone has a misfortune, if something bad is happening to them, they deserve it. Now, they, they've committed some sin, you know, that we may not know about. Or maybe they think up something that you probably did. Uh, the, the religions in those days certainly felt that way. So when something uh, happened to someone, like they did to Paul and Peter and the rest of the guys, where they were arrested, thrown in jail, beaten, tortured, persecuted, they said, boy, those guys must have really... Uh, done some bad things to get all that and kind of look down on him. But he's saying, look, 
this is actually a badge of honor. Imagine that. What a different perspective that would be. To, to, to look at it is not a disgrace. It's a badge of honor. And God is actually going to bless you in the midst of whatever is happening. Uh, so uh, I know that Paul had written to his audience at Philippi in the book of Philippians saying that because Jesus had humbled himself and come into the world to suffer greatly and die the worst kind of death on the cross, the crucifixion, the most humiliating and painful way to die, God had highly exalted him. So it was within God's plan to do this. And of course, the greatest example of that is Jesus himself. And so when you're in the process of something happening to you, some type of suffering, some type of tragedy, remember that God gave himself his own medicine. No one suffered more than Jesus did, and no greater outcome has ever come from suffering and tragedy than what came from the crucifixion, which is the redemption of mankind, right? And so it's actually a badge of honor. It's a revolutionary concept. It's not a worldly concept. The world doesn't get this at all. If you watch the worldly religions or some of the worldly churches they have, uh, on TV, you know, that have a, a tremendous uh, group. You know, there's a guy down there in Houston that has, you know, 25,000 people in a, an old arena, you know. And, and his message is always the same. Everything's good. God wants you to be rich and prosperous and healthy. And if you have the faith, you know, you will be and you think positively. Now, that's great, you know, psychology, power of positive thinking. But uh, biblically, theologically, it's just not true. <laughs> so uh, it was within God's plan. It's a revolutionary concept because it's not worldly, but it is a godly concept that suffering is not a disgrace, but is actually a badge of honor. And the New Testament ascriptions of honor and status uh, coming through humiliation and persecution and suffering are, are many. They're numerous. Uh, we've just a few to, to show you. Uh, Paul uh, actually used this, his sufferings, to say uh, his enemies in Corinth, that it was a bunch of uh, guys had come in uh, that were trying to make a bunch of money off religion, and they were professional speakers, and they uh, criticized Paul. They said, well, this guy gets thrown in jail all the time, and this guy, you know, and Paul said, that's the mark of an apostle. Those guys think they're something special. They think they're servants of Christ. Look, this sounds insane, but the truth is, I'm more so because I have been in far more labors, more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. I don't know how you have any skin left. Does it grow back after all that? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I remember the story in one of the towns. They stoned him and they thought he was dead and they just left him outside the city. I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I slept on the deep. I slept. So he's saying that's the badge of honor for an apostle. 
Uh, these guys that are writing to you, they haven't done any of this, and so obviously God is not using them. <laughs> obviously, they're not speaking up the truth uh, of, of God's Word. Um, and then uh, John 15, did Jesus, did he expect this? Did Jesus tell his disciples to expect it? Absolutely. At the Last Supper, in his last teaching to them, John 15, if the world hates you, or that uh, first word is often translated since, since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. They're getting ready to arrest me and kill me. So uh, you're not alone when, when this stuff happens to you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, he says you, you're living in the world, but you're not a worldly person. That's what he means. When you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you because you're linked to Christ and represent Christ, they hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If it happened to me, it will happen to you, is what he's saying. Uh, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Uh, so, um, what else do we got? John 16, again, he says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. It's just going to be trouble. But take courage, I've overcome the world. It won't be like this forever. I'm coming to get you, and I'm going to set up the kingdom of God, and I'm going to end evil. Know that this is true. But now, for a little while, you're going to have to go through all this stuff. James, in his book, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, God's doing something, building your character through whatever this trial is, and let endurance have its perfect result. Romans, Paul writes uh, about trouble. He's not like this, but we exult. We are fired up about our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. Again, God is going to bless somehow the stuff that happens to you. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says about uh, persecution and trouble, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, they're they're whipping and beating this, this outer person, throwing it in jail and everything. But our inner man, our soul spirit, is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So uh, there will be rewards in heaven for everything you go through now. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So we're looking at the spiritual reality, the truth of what's happening. The world just sees the outer part uh, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And in the book of Revelation, he's uh, talking about the persecution uh, at the end times right before the second coming, and he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation, but be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So they will be rewarded for everything they went through. All right? This is my favorite one um, that does, you know, I think about this all the time. If children, heirs also, uh, God, we're in God's family. 
fellow heirs with Christ, we're joined with him, we're in the same family now, if indeed we suffer with him. So now as we suffer, consider yourself uh, as a part of what Christ suffered. If we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. So uh, that's our perspective. That's, that's how we think, you know. Okay, this is rough. Okay, we're having to go through a rough patch here. This, this is painful. Um, there's no doubt about that on, in a physical sense. But our perspective is that uh, it's not even worthy. It's just a short period of time compared to eternity. And that's what we're look, really looking forward to uh, is being with him in his glory, in perfection, the end of all pain and trouble and tears and death, right? So again, as I said, the New Testament looks upon uh, any kind of trouble that we're going through, any kind of problems uh, in that way, as really a badge of honor that God can use. Whatever's going on in your life, God can actually use uh, to glorify himself. I know Paul also talked about this in Philippians. He, he talked about uh, servants of the Lord and all that they go through uh, as we've been looking. And he's talking about uh, his hero. And according to Paul in Philippians 2.29, he said, a man of the highest regard. This is no doubt going to be somebody you've heard of and you think about. You've read his biography, Epaphroditus. <laughs> you haven't read his biography? He's not your hero? Gosh. Yeah, Epaphroditus, not Julius Caesar, not Nero, not Alexander the Great, not Herod the Great, but Epaphroditus. Why? What were his accomplishments? He was a servant, a fellow worker for Christ. He acted as a messenger uh, and went through a lot of hardship. And in his service, he says, he even got sick to the point of death uh, because of what he was doing. Uh, and yet, uh, that it, in that humility and pain and adverse circumstances and persecution and suffering, uh, God honored him. And Paul looked at him as, as a man of God and, uh, and very important, a man to be honored, a man of the highest honor. So God does bless uh, all the trouble, all the pain and suffering that we go through. And um, Paul used it in defense of his own apostleship. And uh, he, he, the authors of the Bible knew it to be something that was a reality, but from God's viewpoint, it's different from the world's. That God can actually bless us as we go through these trials and tribulations. So our perspective on suffering is that the people in the world around us are lost sheep who need a shepherd. That's how, how we see people. And we are willing to put up with abuse and insults and pain and suffering in order to be a good witness and win some for Christ. 
That, that's the idea. As they see our reaction is different, and uh, the way we handle it is different, uh, it, it will have an impact on the people around us. All right? So in, uh, in your text, in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 8, and he's looking back to what he's talked about earlier, he said to sum up, let all be harmonious. Everybody, the church meets and gathers together, and let everybody be harmonious. Everybody get along and have the same attitude, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for evil, in, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Can you imagine that? Somebody insults you and does something evil, and yet you give some kind of blessing to them? That's revolutionary. Uh, and for that, you might, verse 9, inherit a blessing. God will bless you for doing that. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 34 who, who has a, a real positive, the psalmist has a real positive outlook. Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. God's watching. And he's seeing how you treat people. Um, and how you suffer and everything that happens to you, God knows and God's taking it into account. And so verse 13, uh, the, the, the suffering part, it's going to give you five principles we need, beginning in verse 13, in order to be equipped to stand up against suffering, stand up against the world. And so five principles, we'll go through them one at a time. In verse 13, a passion for goodness. Verse 13 says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good. So when they see you have this passion for goodness, for doing the right thing, for helping people, uh, a life characterized by generosity and unselfishness and kindness and thoughtfulness, uh, these, these things kind of tend to uh, restrain people's anger against you. Uh, or you know, how can you get mad at somebody who's that kind and generous and thoughtful? You know, you just don't. You can't help but uh, like them, right? Uh, so it's, it's possible to humble or bring down or have be friends with, have a relationship even with the most ardent foes, right? Uh, and then verse 14, a willingness to suffer. Um, that's a difficult one, I know. <laughs> yes, sign me up. You know, let's, let's get some of that. So, uh, but what he's saying is a willingness really to trust God. Like I said, you don't go looking for it. You don't sign up for it. You don't really want it. That's normal, natural. But when it does come, you, it, you have a willingness to trust God to get you through it and to bring something positive out of it. A willingness to trust God when we suffer. Right? Uh, Jesus is, again, the perfect example of that. Uh, he knew, uh, he wasn't happy about the things that were happening to him. He didn't like physical pain. He, he felt it being 100% human. 
but he understood that God was going to do something through it. Uh, and he went about doing good even to those who were hostile to him, even to those who would have him killed, right? I, I saw a good story about, you know, in the second century, you know, from the period of about 100 to 200 A.D., the early church, the early church fathers, um, when Rome was really arresting these guys and feeding them to the lions and everything, uh, one of the guys that was a real, real known because he was an author and he was the bishop of Smyrna uh, in the area that uh, Peter was writing to. And Polycarp uh, had this kind of attitude uh, and, and saw it as God's blessing. And they arrested him and the uh, governor there uh, got him before his uh, judgment seat and he said to Polycarp, we are warming up the savage beasts in the Colosseum for you if you don't recant this terrible Christianity. And Polycarp says, warm them up because I look forward to that feast that they will have. And uh, I know that God will bring some kind of glory uh, from it. And the guy said, oh yeah? Well then... We're going to burn you at the stake, burn you alive. And he said, get that fire started <laughs> because my martyrdom will bring glory to God and this is what I was made for. And, they, and then they were like, what do we do with this guy? You know, everybody else we bring up here scared to death and they'll do anything to save themselves. But it's almost like we're doing something as a favor for this guy, right? And so uh, he was martyred. Uh, there's, other, there's all kinds of examples. John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he was thrown in jail for sharing the gospel, and he wrote Pilgrim's, he said, well, I'm going to do something positive while I'm here in jail. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, who so many people have read and come to Christ through. Martin Luther, you know, they, they drug him before the court and told him to recant all of his uh, heresy that they said he was saying. Uh, and he says, I refuse to recant scripture as it is the truth. Uh, whether uh, men say so or not, I will follow the scriptures. And so they, uh, he walked out and they sent a hit squad to, to kill him. And uh, the guy he worked for back in his hometown in Germany scooped him up and hid him for about six months. And during that six months of hiding, he did one of the first translations of the Latin text. Up on that time, it was illegal to have a translation. It had to be in Latin because they only wanted the priests to be able to read the scriptures and interpret them. Uh, they didn't want people to have their own Bible and, and be able to read it. And so he said, well, I'm going to use that time to translate the Bible. And he did. Uh, so uh, there is a wealth of this kind of example of people actually trusting God uh, in their when they suffer. In verse 15, uh, also a devotion to Christ. You're, you're devoted uh, to the Lord. Uh, you, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So he's the most important priority. He's the main one that you live for to glorify him uh, and to 
uh, always make him the head of your life and the, and the meaning for your life. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Uh, he is the sole object of your reverence and your loyalty and obedience. And then number four, also in verse 15, is really important. One of the great passages in the Bible. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. And so we, we're always prepared. Now, this is something that I find uh, Christianity, uh, even the people in my Bible studies, believe it or not, woefully inadequate. And a lot of times when I bring this up, uh, they'll say, well, I, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I, I don't know what to say, you know, if people ask me about this. So I even have a whole lot of people call me. and say, will you go see Joe Schmo or whatever or, I've got Joe Schmo here. Will you talk to him? And they'll, you know, which is fine, by the way. I'm happy doing that. Uh, it makes me feel needed and wanted. But uh, the scriptures say, you be ready, you be prepared. And what's involved in that? Uh, I think uh, theologians call it apologetics. You know, always be ready. That's what uh, the Greek word apology means defense. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. And it really uh, entails two things, two stories, really. The first story is your story. And you, I'm sure you already know that. I think you do. <laughs> so your story is who you were before Christ and how you came to Christ and now the difference Christ has made in your life. That's it. And you combine that to the simple gospel. Uh, and what is that? It's kind of a three-step thing. Number one, uh, all have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's a problem. The human race has a problem. We've fallen short of God's expectation. Uh, we've fallen short of His righteousness. So secondly... What are we going to do? Well, that's the, that's the beauty of it. The love of God, His attribute of love, dictated that He do something about it. We call it the grace of God. The grace of God. And so in His love, because God loved us, you know, the John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? That He gave His only begotten Son. So God took the initiative because He loves us, he took the initiative, sent his son into the world to save us. And then the third step is, but we've got to individually, our part, to receive that, that pardon, that forgiveness, that grace. We just individually receive it through faith. It's that belief, it's that commitment to what God has done for us, right? So when we say we've received Jesus as our Savior, or we believe in Jesus as our Savior, that's what we mean. And that's it. It's not that complicated. Right? So your story combined with the gospel story. So always, you should always be ready. Every single one of us should be able to do that. It's very simple. And it's very important to be able to because people see your positive response to suffering and they go, 
Why are you different? Why, why do you have this hope and this positive outlook uh, that people normally don't have? And so you're ready with a defense, ready for an explanation for that. Okay? Uh, and then, uh, fifthly, in verse 16, a part of that really connected to that, he says, and keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. A pure conscience. And why is that important? And what does that mean? Uh, your conscience is that inner mechanism that God created us with. We read in the creation account that God made us in His image. And that since we're like Him, that we have a moral sense. We have a natural, God-given moral sense for right and wrong. We know when something's wrong or right. right? The animal kingdom doesn't really have that. They're just self-preservation, right? Uh, and so we have a conscience. And of course, uh, if you have the Spirit of God in you, that conscience is heightened because He's really using your moral sense to reach out to you. And so when you keep a good conscience, He's saying that you live the good life. So, just think of it this way. Uh, if you're Billy Bank Robber, your defense of the gospel is not going to be very powerful. Right? Uh, you know the story, I think I've told it before, it's a true story of Mickey Cohen, that famous gangster in L.A. in the early 50s. He went to a Bible study, and he heard him talking about the gospel, and he said, hey, I want, I want some of that. And they said, well, you just have to pray to receive Christ. And he said, okay. So he did, and he kept coming to the Bible study. And then one day at the Bible study, they were looking at the paper before the Bible study, and it said, Cohen Gang murders 10, you know, or something. <laughs> and they asked him about it. He's sitting there, and he goes, hey, look, you have Christian doctors. You have Christian lawyers. Why not Christian gangsters? <laughs> Perfectly logical. His testimony is not valid. Right? So that's what he's talking about. Keep a clear conscience. If you have a good reputation and nobody has anything against you, you're a lot more likely uh, to be able to, to uh, do that with somebody, share that with somebody, than someone who is uh, the opposite of that, like Mickey Cohen. All right? So like a pure conscience that innate sense of right and wrong and uh, that reputation that you have with people is very important. Alright? So he goes on in verse 17 and he says, For it is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So as I said before, uh, he draws a distinction between innocent suffering and deserved suffering. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, if you have a clear conscience in your suffering, then you, you could easily say that's innocent. But if you were a bank robber and you were arrested and going to jail, that's your fault. That's on you, right? And so God's not too uh, excited about blessing that. But... Uh, that's what he's talking about, keeping a clear conscience uh, and drawing a distinction between what's right and wrong. 
verse 18 through 22 is the example of how Christ's unjust suffering achieved God's blessing. It's going to use Jesus as the perfect example. Jesus was perfectly righteous, but he suffered terribly. Still, Jesus triumphed through undeserved suffering and received a great blessing from God. He was highly exalted by God for what he did, for that suffering that he went through. And of course, for us, it's the greatest thing ever happened, as I said, because it provided for our redemption for sinners, right? So, in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. There's a lot of doctrine in this one passage. See if you can pick it out. Christ also died for sins. So, first of all, all sins, past, present, and future. Uh, not just something you did today and confess today, and you lose your salvation tomorrow when you do something else. No, Christ died for all sins, past, present, and future. Uh, they were all, all, just needed one sacrifice, right? For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, he's the just, but he died for the unjust, for sinners like us. Uh, and so everybody that receives Christ is, is completely forgiven. And he being sinless and offering the perfect sacrifice uh, was the one who could do it for us. We deserve to die for our own sins, but Jesus being sinless was a perfect substitute. And he did it that he might bring us to God or reunite us with God, having been put to death in the flesh. So the humanity, the human, uh, was put to death. Jesus the human was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So just like us, when we die, the physical body is dead, but the spirit is still alive, right? And so... One of the historical questions that Christianity has always asked over the years, he's crucified uh, Friday, right? Uh, and then he dies and he's buried. Where'd he go? What happened to him on Saturday? You know, people have always asked that and wondered about that. Um, after this Bible study, you will still have no idea. <laughs> 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 that's, that's how I do my job. <laughs> and this is also is a very difficult passage that theologians, if you read uh, five theologians, you'll probably get five different answers. So let me go through this. And maybe you're smarter than everybody else and can figure it out. Uh, here we go. So he died for sins for once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the Spirit was still alive. In which, so in the Spirit, he went somewhere. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, who were once 
disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Got it? Can I just keep going? Everybody? So uh, the best way to tackle something like this is to say, okay, well, what's, what is the theme? Uh, what is this related to? And it, so it's got to be related to Christ's suffering because that's what he's been talking about, right? So part of that, is, what he's talking about is uh, one of the blessings that came from Christ's suffering, one of the blessings of the crucifixion is that the Lord could proclaim victory over evil and sin and death. And that's what he did. And I think that's the meaning of what we take away from this. Now, if, if you really wanted to figure out the details, uh, there's three main schools of thought that I'll critique. Number one is he's talking about unsaved humans of Noah's day. So way back uh, in the day of Noah, you know, when he built the ark, uh, Peter, uh, later on, I think, uh, at the end of this book, talks about Noah. I think it's in Second Peter, actually. Uh, what did Noah do during that 120 years they were building the ark? Well, besides build the ark, it says he was a preacher. He went about preaching what was getting ready to happen and how people should come to the Lord, repent. You know, because the world was getting ready to end. Right? So he was preaching. Uh, and so one of the possibilities is that during that period of time, Christ preached through Noah. The Spirit of God was preaching through Noah, or Christ's Spirit. Uh, and so he was talking to the people of those days uh, that were destroyed by the flood uh, who wouldn't listen. Right? Um, the second one seems the more logical or seems to be the more uh, obvious one that he's talking about if you take it literally which is he went to a place where a, a pit, an abyss, a prison where fallen angels you may know that uh, uh, when Satan rebelled a third of the angels went with him and we called them demons or whatever. And the worst of those, during the time of Noah, we're told, were thrown into the abyss and held as prisoner. They were so bad, they had corrupted the world so badly during the time of Noah that God basically put them in chains. He arrested them. In the new world that I make, you won't be there this time. You're too, you're too awful. So fallen angels that were cast into hell, the worst of them, Christ, during that period of time, His Spirit went and proclaimed victory over evil, sin, and death. Uh, and I think that's probably what He's saying here. If you look at Jude chapter 1, verse 9, He talks about that. And so, I mean, I think there's a, a, some backup scripture uh, to add to that. So, uh, not that it really matters because we get the meaning of what he's talking about. The third one that uh, liberal theologians go for, and I can tell you this one is wrong, 
is that Christ offered, a, he went to the people who were already uh, in hell and gave them a second chance. Let me tell you what I've just done and I want to give you one more chance before, to, you know. No. No. Um, that's not the case. That is against all the other scripture about that, okay? So, but again, you get the, the, the meaning of what he's talking about. Uh, and then, verse 21, uh, the author of Peter says, in corresponding to that, the reason he's using that is because he wants to make an analogy between a Christian's water baptism and the water that Noah's guys uh, traveled through and were saved by on the ark. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And I'm not talking about the removal of dirt. So I'm not talking about when you get in the water and get out. I'm talking about when you identify yourself and you make your profession of faith at baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It's just that time when you go public with your profession of faith. Uh, and, and he's saying uh, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we receive Christ, that's what we're doing, appealing to him for that salvation and that future resurrection. Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and power had been subjected to him. See, I think that kind of backs up what I was saying as well. He proclaimed to everyone, even the saved people and also the unsaved, that what he did caused God's plan to be victorious. Now in chapter 4, uh, we'll go through uh, real quick. Um, chapter 4 is four motivations to be strong in the midst of the, of the suffering that's out there, right? Uh, so, first of all, our first motivation is the attitude of Christ. He's the one that we follow. He's our perfect example. And He blessed God and He had a positive attitude in His suffering. It was the attitude of Christ. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because He has suffered in the flesh he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so, uh, secondly, he says, live for the will of God in verse 3 through 5. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Fortunately, that never happened to anybody here. but I know too much about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can all point to a time in our life, probably, uh, most of us, uh, I'm sure, when that's what life was about. I mean, that was basically, you know, my college life right there. What are we doing this Saturday? We're going to the party, we're going to get drunk, you know. That was considered, you know, appropriate and a good thing. And he's saying, hey, put all that stuff You've grown up. You know, you're a new person in, in the Lord. Put all that other stuff behind you. We all have friends uh, that from college, that, or people we know at least now, uh, who never have changed. 
they still have that lifestyle. But right? I'm always amazed at that, you know. So uh, next, be transformed. Don't be like the world that we live in. Uh, in verse six, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that they that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. What do you mean preach to the dead? People who are now dead previously had the gospel preached to them. Um, and so what he's saying is uh, the hope of, of, of eternal life there in verse 6 is in you. Those who are dead are believers who had been martyred, maybe, judged in the flesh, or put to death. Um, but all that did was give them eternal life. They now live in the Spirit according to the will of God, right? Uh, so, uh, we have a different way of thinking, a different perspective, uh, that somehow, some way, no matter what is, we're going through, God is going to bless us in whatever situation we find ourselves. And God can uh, bring good out of what seems to be uh, disaster. We know that. We believe it. We've seen it in the Bible characters. And the ultimate example of that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank You so much for our salvation. Thank You so much that we have You to fall back on. No matter what happens in our life, we still have the hope, the faith, that You're going to bless us in the midst of it, and You're going to see us through it. We're going to endure it, and uh, eventually overcome it, and there will be rewards in heaven for it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.